The heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things. You meet someone and you fall in love and that's that. That's the great comedian and filmmaker Woody Allen explaining how it was that he abandoned his wife Mia Farrow to take up with Farrow's adoptive daughter Soon Yi Previn, whom he married in 1997. Allen is a very well-read man, so it's possible that when he said that, he was consciously, or perhaps unconsciously, channeling Emily Dickinson. In a letter to a friend written in 1862, Dickinson wrote, the heart wants what it wants, or else it does not care. The heart wants what it wants. On the lips of Woody Allen, the words sound like a justification. Human desire is mysterious. We are its helpless playthings. Don't blame me, blame my heart. From the pen of Emily Dickinson, the words sound more like a comment on how the heart, or desire, or eros, is close to the animating principle of what it means to be human. It's why we get out of bed in the morning. It's why we love and study and marry. The heart wants what it wants or else it does not care. The heart desires or else we die. Human beings are lovers down to the very core. It is, of course, a deeply Augustinian insight. You have made us for yourself, writes Augustine, on the very first page of the Confessions. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So likewise, that great Augustinian Pascal tells us that the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. Now the problem, of course, is that the heart often wants the wrong things. The heart wants what it wants, not what is good or courageous or true or of assistance to the neighbor, but that which feeds the fantasies of our desires. So we read in Genesis, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The 20th century novelist and philosopher Iris Murdoch spoke of the fat, relentless ego and showed the wreckage it causes in her dark and funny and weird novels. The fat, relentless ego, a good description of the human condition. We Christians have another name for the heart's evil imagining. We just call it sin. The Old Testament is ruthlessly honest about sin's empire, the way it plants its flag, not just in the Gentile nations with their idols and abominable practices, that is only to be expected. But in the midst of the covenant between God and Israel, Israel, God's beloved people, have sinned. They have dishonored the Torah and broken the covenant. They have answered God's love with malice and injustice and hatred. The situation is dire. What is needed is not good intentions or promises to do better next time, or any other sort of halfway measure, but a radical new beginning, a new love, a new affection, a new obedience. We encounter this vision of the future in many parts of the Old Testament, but perhaps nowhere more powerfully than in the passage we read from Jeremiah this morning. 
but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The covenant established on Sinai pointed the way, offered a vision of human life as it should be, showed what it might look like to live in peace with God and one's neighbor, perhaps even with oneself. This is what the Ten Commandments are all about. But in the new covenant of which Jeremiah speaks, obedience will come from within. It will be written on the human heart. The heart will indeed want what it wants, and what it wants will be good. This preaching series has been advertised as being about the Reformation, and maybe you were wondering when I would get around to that. But you see, I already have. For notice something about our Jeremiah passage. It is in the form of a promise. There is no more reformational category than that. Protestant theologians from Luther to Barth to Robert Jensen, whom we lost just last week, have read scripture as one long record of God's promise making and promise keeping. Jeremiah's words were addressed to Israel of his own day, teetering on the brink of exile. But they gesture forward to the day when God's promises to Israel, to the nations, to the world, and indeed to the whole creation would be fulfilled in the sending of God's own Son and the pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh. The new covenant envisioned by Jeremiah is none other than the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is quite simply the gospel, the glad tidings that God has visited his people, not just to forgive sin or even usher in the kingdom, but to transform our wayward hearts. There is no more profoundly reformational theme than that. The law in its unity with the gospel, the gospel as the true meaning of the law, the spirit as the divine person who writes that law in our hearts so that we may love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and our neighbors as ourselves. This is the gift God has given us in Jesus who is as the author to the Hebrews tells us, the mediator of a new covenant sealed with his own sprinkled blood. If we had more time this morning, we could play with this theme as it is discussed by John Calvin in his Institutes. Calvin wrote eloquently about the unity between the old and new covenants despite their very real differences. Or we could fast forward to the 20th century and look at Karl Barth's doctrine of election where Jesus Christ is himself the substance of the covenant between God and his people. But we do not have time for that, and anyway, this is a sermon and not a theological lecture. So I will leave you instead with an image, drawn not from Calvin, however, or Barth, but from Martin Luther. Luther's personal seal consisted of a black cross on a red heart resting on a white rose 
the whole set against a field of blue and surrounded by a golden ring. The cross, Luther explains, is black because it puts to death our sin. The heart is red, its natural color, because the cross does not kill us but makes us alive. It perfects rather than destroys our nature. The white rose is the peace that comes to us through the gospel, while the blue field represents the joy that awaits us in heaven. The gold ring, finally, is the heavenly blessedness that lasts forever and has no end. The heart wants what it wants, and in Christ our Lord, God has given us our heart's desire. May we take this gospel message out of this chapel and this school into the world that God has made, loved, and reconciled in the person of his Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.